Welcome to Kessler Foundation's 2017 Multiple Sclerosis Consumer Conference, Improving Cognitive, Emotional, and Physical Health in Multiple Sclerosis. This conference is hosted by Kessler Foundation and is being funded by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, grant number 1508-05940. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, October 13, 2017, at the Westminster Hotel, 550 West Mount Pleasant Ave, Livingston, New Jersey. Be sure and check out all of the conference presentations. Just click on the description for the conference playlist and slide link. Our second panel discussion, Wellness, Everyday Life Activities, and Employment, included Drs. Yael Grover-Over, Kimberly Beckwith-McGuire. Wellness, Everyday Life Activities, and Employment, included Drs. Yael Grover-Over, Kimberly Beckwith-McGuire, and Lauren B. Strober. Dr. Jael Groverover is an occupational therapist with expertise in developing interventions to improve everyday function and quality of life in individuals with MS and is a visiting scientist at Kessler Foundation. Her research focuses on the cognitive and functional impairments and their impact on activities of daily living and participation. Dr. Kimberly Beckwith-McGuire is staff psychologist and leader of the MS Wellness Program at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Dr. McGuire has more than a decade of experience treating people with MS and conducts clinical research examining the effectiveness of clinical interventions for individuals with chronic medical conditions. Dr. Lauren B. Strober is an expert in the field of quality of life in people with MS and a senior research scientist at Kessler Foundation. Her research focuses on secondary complications of MS. Dr. Strober explores how factors specific to the individual, such as personality and coping skills, impact quality of life and employment. Moderator for our panel discussion is Michelle Pignatello, Chief Development Officer of Kessler Foundation. She is responsible for raising philanthropic funds to advance Kessler Foundation's rehabilitation research, and disability employment initiatives by finding connections and building relationships. She has more than two decades of experience guiding philanthropy in support of charitable institutions. Let's listen in. And this, for the final panel, we will focus on well-being, relationships, uh, and everyday life, including employment. So we have another great panel. Um, and I'm honored to welcome them. First here is uh, Dr. Kimberly McGuire, who runs the MS uh, Wellness Center at Kessler Institute, our close collaborator. So I want to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Kimberly, please. I'm a clinical health psychologist, and I work at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. And I recognize today that I am the only non-Kessler Foundation member. I'm like out of, out of the, the group. <laughs> and you're also wearing gray. And I'm, and I'm not wearing all black. <laughs> so not cool. I'm wearing gray. It's, oh, yeah. See? Okay. So our honorary uh, Kessler Institute yes. uh, person. Welcome, Kim. So we, we once again have Dr. Helen Genova. We, we know Helen. We know she studies fatigue. But Helen, please tell us a little bit more about what you also do. Sure. So I also study um, social cognition 
in multiple sclerosis, which is uh, people's ability to understand each other and understand other people's emotions. And we'll talk, and we'll, about, we'll talk it. about it in detail, what that is all about. And then next to Helen, we have Dr. Yale Gorover. Hi. Um, so I'm an occupational therapist. I work at uh, New York University. I'm associate professor there, but I'm also a visiting scientist in the Kessler Foundation. And I do a lot of research about how MS affects uh, everyday life. How does the disease affect everyday life, our routines, our activities, participations in social events, and things like that. And last but not least, we have Dr. Lauren Strober. And um, uh, we know that Lauren organized the conference today, and she did a fabulous job. So we want to thank her for doing that. And Lauren, please tell us about your research. So I primarily focus on quality of life issues in multiple sclerosis and particularly looking at person-specific factors that may sort of explain differing trajectories in well-being and how one contends with and manages their illness um, and how to develop interventions also then to maintain one's well-being based on some of that knowledge and most recently looking at that with employment. So Yael, you mentioned that you're looking at ways to help people, uh, looking at people's everyday life and how to improve that. What do you mean specifically? So um, everyday life, everyday life is such a big concept, right? Uh, but if you think about it, our life are just set of activities. You wake up in the morning and you have to think, okay, what do I do next? And do I go to brush my teeth or do I go to pre uh, prepare breakfast? Do I go to wake up my kids if you have kids? Or do I go just to read uh, the newspaper? So this is the first set of decisions you must uh, make when you wake up. And then you continue with your day. And uh, if it's going to work or going to shopping or doing to exercise, as someone mentioned, everyone have their own plans, their own schedule. When you think about all of these activities, you have to think that you have a lot of decision-making to do there, a lot of concentration. You have to attend to different cues you have in the environment of what you need to do next. Um, you have to think, okay, should I drive to work? There is a traffic jam, so should I take uh, the 280 route or should I do take another route? So it's really a lot of navigation, a lot of attention, problem solving, initiation. So um, that's brought me to really study uh, the relationship between cognition and everyday life and how can we improve cognition and at the same time, improve our everyday life activities. I think it's a key component because if we improve our memory, if we improve our attention, if we improve our problem solving and processing speed, would it help us to improve our daily life? Because this is the most important thing eventually. It will be wonderful if someone will have a, a better memory for a list of words, but it will be even more wonderful if we have a memory to do the strategies we want to do, if we um, to remember things we actually need to do through the day, not to uh, forget to pick up our kids at the school. Um, so yeah. So basically what you're, I think it's natural for us to take for granted the, the tasks that we have to do and not think about how much thinking is involved in carrying out those tasks and that you're looking, you, your, your research is cognizant of that. There is so much 
yes. thinking that involves the things that just seem routine. Exactly. So everyday life is really about cognition. Everything we do in our life, if we go in the street, suddenly I found myself this morning walking in the street and texting to the babysitter who needs to pick up my kids from school today. And I'm like, I had to stop and write her the message. I couldn't do the two things at the same time. So many times I do this uh, strategi strategies automatically because I kind of like my body and my brain adjust to the activity I need to do. But I find many patients with a mess and not necessarily do this adaptation, just uh, sometimes it's because they mess, sometimes it's because they still think they can do things as they used to do in the past, but many times we have to stop for a second and think, what do we need to do in terms of cognition? What strategies should we employ to perform better? So if it's at work and you have a lot of things to do, you sit and you have like a huge spreadsheet in front of you on the computer with all of this information and you become very fatigued just from looking at it. So uh, many people should take breaks, should employ some strategies um, as maybe reducing the noise, reducing uh, not only the auditory noise, but other things um, on the desk, just to keep ourselves more focused and more attentive to, uh, to the task that we need to do. So, yeah, so we know that, the, that um, everyday life activities require cognitive abilities, and we know that MS affects cognitive ability. So how, how does that play out in, in daily living? And you all, can, you all have experience in this, so please all jump in. So, um, so I will start and then Lauren, you will Thanks. add for the employment part because I think... Pitch it to I, me when you're ready. Yes. <laughs> so um, again, if you think um, about, I, you know, I meet a lot of patients with MS in my studies. I actually had a, an interesting study that uh, I had to see each patient for eight times, so we had a lot of time to discuss everyday life. And one of the questions I asked a lot of my patients, a lot of the participants and patients who came to my study was like, so how does MS affect your life? And um, a lot of uh, issues that came up were about memory, were about a, a processing speed. They said, like, we can still learn things. However, it's so slow. In the past, we used to learn, and it was so much quicker. Now it takes us much more time. Now we cannot deal with a lot of distractions. And uh, that's exactly what uh, we do in our studies. We try to think, OK, how can we uh, improve encoding strategy? How can we improve memory? How can we uh, provide strategies to patient? that will help them actually remember better. And at the same time, how can we help apply to everyday life activity? So is it enough just to teach the strategy? No, we need to teach also when to use it and how to use it. And these are key components in the link between cognition and performance of activities of daily living. So if I teach a person to use the strategy that you heard about before, the self-generation, I want also to be able to teach a, that someone will understand actually, okay, when the best time to use it? Is it, would it be when I'm, uh, when someone, when my boss tell me a list of uh, things that I need to remember to do later? Is it when I come to a teacher-parent conference and they tell me all the things they are going to do during the next month? When would be the best time? 
and the best way to use the strategy that I learned in the, in the treatment. Right, so you need to right, be aware of the problem, Yes. Uh, ways to treat the problem, and when to use the problem. Exactly. And all in the idea is, I can solve this problem, I, I know how to solve this problem. Exactly. So uh, when we discussed before using the um, uh, calendars and reminders on the phone to do things, it's not enough just to know that there is this application to remind us to use to do things. We also need to remember to use the application and how to use it in the best way. And that's actually what we are doing, we are trying to do in our treatments, is actually to teach people the right way to do it and that the people will be aware of when to actually use it. I can say something here. You know, I, I use a lot of neuropsychological tests, so the paper and pencil tests. Those tests. Um, yeah, those, those horrible <laughs> tests. But um, just from watching uh, Yael over the years, uh, her tests sometimes are so much cooler and more applicable to <laughs> everyday life. You know, I'm telling people to add these numbers, and she's sitting there saying, well, can you make an omelet? <laughs> and and it, but it's really wonderful because then you really truly see how the cognitive deficits or, or abilities mm -hmm. affect what they're doing in the morning when you're making your breakfast and the afternoon you know when you're preparing your lunch. So I think the research really cool. Thanks. Okay, so we know also from uh, this morning that employment is a factor in MS. So Lauren studies that area. Tell us just how big of a problem is it. So unemployment's a tremendous problem in multiple sclerosis. Statistics on, on various studies, at any given time, 40% of people with MS are unemployed, and 40% want to return to work. Um, but even more striking is that these rates can be as high as 70 to 80% at about five to 10 years following diagnosis. And this is really in stark contrast that 90 to 96% of people with MS are employed prior to their diagnosis. So what so. accounts for that? So certainly what we've heard today, fatigue and cognitive impairment, uh, particularly processing speed and memory, are the greatest culprits in explaining why people are having difficulties at work and or leave the workforce completely. Um, but there's a host of other factors that patients report to us, so things such as limited mobility, um, balance problems, uh, lower and upper extremity difficulties, these are pretty high on the list when we look at their endorsements. So imagine, I know we have a lot of nurses in our studies, those difficulties would really make it hard for you to do your job. And then other factors like heat sensitivity, bladder incontinence, things we don't really give enough credence to as to how that could actually lead to somebody to have difficulties at work. Now you're looking at something very specific other than the cognitive and the physical symptoms and how it affects employment. Can yep. you tell us about that? So that's sort of my real main interest. So ever since we've started looking at employment difficulties in MS, we know that there are physical problems, there are cognitive problems, and there are certain demographics, so older age, female gender, less education, that account for, or at least are the descriptors of people who aren't working. But that accounts for, if you look at sort of a pie, um, only about a quarter of the pie. So I'm looking for the other 75, 86%, to be exact, um, as to what might account for why people are not working. And, this is sort of the interest in these person-specific factors. And what do I mean by that? Um, in our longitudinal study, we've already shown that things such as inadequate coping, uh, lower self-efficacy, personality style in certain traits that people have, anxiety, depression, social support, perceived stress, all of these factors kind of take off a bigger piece of the pie for us 
Um, but the good thing is, these are modifiable. These are things that can be treated and addressed and can really make a difference. Well, it seems like what Yael was talking about before, those strategies, address some of those person-specific factors. Would you? Yes. So uh, it's uh, very interesting because um, I think that what just now uh, Dr. Storer spoke about really relates to, in addition, it's just I'm trying to connect to the previous talk to motivation and what does keep us going. And um, when we think about it, what keeps us going is the fact that first there is a reward and for every person a reward is something very, very personal. Uh, but in addition to a reward, it's also the feeling that I actually can do it. And uh, how do we build this feeling that I can do it? Many people that have a disease or a disability, and it's not only a mess, it can be for every person, I think. We sometimes they face challenges and we feel like, oh, we cannot do it. It's, it's impossible that I, can, I will be able to do it. It's impossible for me to speak in front of so many people. But then you have to do something to change this belief about yourself and incorporate it into your activities of daily living to the challenges that you face in activities of daily living. And um, there are many ways to do it. Some of them uh, we mentioned also before exercise. And um, exercise, actually, maybe there are conflicting results in relation to cognition and whether it improves or not improving cognition. However, there are consistent results about its um, ability to improve self-efficacy and my belief about myself. And um, we found that, that, I didn't find it personally, but in research they found that uh, people who do more exercise also tend to have more positive self-efficacy, which can change a lot of perceptions about myself, about my feelings. So if I feel um, depressed and low and that I cannot do this, in a way incorporating physical exercise into my life can change it. And if you think about it, if you do physical, like many people think, or many of us, actually I will include myself into it, many of us can think that, oh, how exactly and when exactly will I do physical activity? When will I find time to do my hobbies or to do or to be engaged in something that will keep me going, that will increase my self-efficacy and uh, it's actually, we found that it's very important to, A, find something that really, um, you find it very engaging for you and it is very meaningful for you. So if for some people, one person mentioned the running, that running is very helpful for her to uh, reduce feelings of anxiety and depression and it keeps her going and that's wonderful. But for another person it would be cooking breakfast for my kids in the morning or hosting my family for dinner, or dinner on Saturday. So every person has something else that is very meaningful for him or her and therefore it's important to uh, incorporate this type of meaningful activities into your life and once you incorporate them into your life it's important to be consistent while you do them so if it's something that could be incorporated every day or every few days um, it will be very important for the sense of being for the sense of well-being that uh, Kimberly spoke about um, and for increasing self-efficacy and feeling that I was 
something that like I can do right. things. And so you so you talk about this idea of self efficacy and affirmation, which kind of taught, reminds me of the conversations we have had about wellness. And t tell us what the what a wellness program would seek to do <coughs> for people with MS. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll talk about what a wellness program um, is about. And but first, I want to say that I'm listening to all the research that's going on, and it all pertains to a wellness approach. And and so the. The researchers that I've had a chance to work with over the last decade, it's been really rewarding for me because I can take that information, that research, and um, help to apply it in a clinical setting in everyday life. And that's really what wellness is about. It's about taking the individual in his or her own context. So not only the physical, but the psychological, the social, the intellectual, the spiritual, and, their, and how that all comes together in, with their personality, their life, and their lifestyle. And in, in a wellness program, and there's, there's about a handful throughout the country, so I'll speak to the wellness program that, that we're running at Kessler, is that we're looking at how to increase the awareness, or not we're looking at, what we do is teach um, strategies on how to increase awareness in everyday life around reactions, actions, feelings, and thoughts, and also around symptoms, and when are symptoms better, when are symptoms worse, what's triggering, what's not triggering, and, and talking about the research that's out there that says, okay, this, I don't, I don't, Dr. McGuire doesn't just think this is a good idea. The evidence is showing that for people living with MS, this is a good idea to try, this is a good idea to try. So it's a very positive, affirming approach, wellness, and very much about self-advocacy and um, learning to take responsibility with the ultimate goal of improving quality of life. That is the ultimate goal. And so you've said there is one single most important wellness factor for people with MS? From my perspective, <laughs> stress management. Um, now, and, and when, we talk, when we talked about this, I said, well, wait a minute, that doesn't mean stress management. We don't mean taking away stress. Right, right. Stress is a normal part of life, right? So the negative stress is where we can mostly go to. So um, whether it's the, the symptoms are really bad when you wake up or there's something going on with the family, but there's also positive stress, right? You might buy a house for people who are working, a new position, a new job. You have a child, a grandchild. You know, there's a lot of um, positive stressors as well. The, the research is coming out more and more to um, really highlight the importance um, for people living with MS on learning how to effectively maneuver stress in everyday life. That by learning and implementing strategies, whether it's from breathing relaxation to yoga to exercise, there, there are many strategies that has to really speak to you. By implementing these on a regular basis, that it is actually helping your, your physical and emotional well-being, and it's, it's all there's a whole model that goes into how how stress that's not managed actually affects inflammation. That's true. 
Interesting. So you talked about a couple of um, examples, but let's maybe we could uh, go into a little bit more detail about how those some of those specific strategies like yoga or breathing really do help and what what the, what the so in other words, them. what is it that they're helping with? Yes. Like, yeah, so the, the research supports, as well as the people that I've met, as well as what I do in my own life, um, supports. But in, in MS, it's the reduced and fatigue big time with yoga and stretching and breathing relaxation. There's a, a report of a decrease in fatigue across the board. Uh, the research is pretty strong on that. And then um, anxiety. I reduce uh, and the self-report of anxiety, depression, and isolation. People aren't feeling as um, as isolated even when doing all of these. But uh, also pain. So there's a trend for um, people experiencing less pain when they engage in these um, various under the rubric of stress management. Mm -hmm. So, so we have another uh, another person in the audience who's participated in this program. I think it's really important to hear from not just our perspective. So we have Harry Stubblefield here today, and Sherry is going to give Harry um, a microphone. Um, and Harry participated in Kimberly's wellness program at Kessler Institute, and she's going to share some some thoughts with us. Yes, I did participate in the wellness program in 2011, and. It was a fantastic program and in that the way it was laid out, the design of the program from just understanding your own body and you did learn uh, so much. Um, the main thing that I would say for the wellness, it uh, gives you an opportunity to interact with other participants. It allows you to meet other therapists, you'll work with um, all type, physical therapists, occupational therapists. You'll just be introduced to the entire program at Kessler Institute. Now, how has that incorporated into my everyday life? It most definitely has in understanding how my fatigue can be actually programmed to be better, and it can be based on journaling. And one of the things that I learned through the wellness program, which allowed me to work with occupational therapists at Kessler, one of the things that I deal with to this day is actually doing a journal of my everyday Everything that I do, meaning one week you need to just start Monday or Sunday, whatever starts your week, and journal from the moment you get up. You're putting down the time, what you do when you wake up, how long it took you to get dressed. All of this, when you journal it and it is on a piece of paper and you take it to your therapist, and as a group, you're sitting down going over that journal of where the most time was spent. And if you see you're spending a lot of time in dressing, well, maybe this is an area that you work with your therapist on how maybe to do it different than what you normally do. So you're always thinking about conserving energy. 
The wellness program also allows you to feel it's okay to know that there are times when you do get depressed with MS, which is what everyone has been talking about concerning MS at times, and you realize that you're not alone and there are opportunities to work with therapists. For instance, I work with Dr. McGuire. I began working with her as a result of the wellness uh, program. Would I have ever worked with a psychologist dealing with MS? Probably not. But that taught me that yes, you can, and it can be very beneficial when you look at the scientific part of your brain and how it affects you emotionally, what is going on with how you work with your own body. Another good thing about working with the wellness program, it also allows you to meet other people. At the time that I was in the program, I had no need for a scooter. But Working and being around other MS people, I was able to work with a person or meet a person who was like me who did a lot of travel. So as a result, I needed a scooter that was light, that I could continue to fly, travel, go right up the ramp to the airplane. And, you know, it made me feel better knowing that I could continue with all my activities and at the time with a piece of equipment that didn't depress me. I'm not saying that other types of equipment would have depressed me, but it would have required a type of vehicle that I didn't have a need for, so I didn't have to have it. This allowed me to just fold up my scooter, put it in the truck, and keep moving. So the wellness program allows you to really uh, engage with others. It allows you to see other things that you can do. For instance, with me, I do hippotherapy, which is somewhat uh, doing exercise on a horse. Now, with the hippotherapy, you are doing yoga. <laughs> really your stretch movements on the horse is really yoga. So these are the things you start learning that yoga is good for you all types of ways, whether it's on the floor, in the chair, on a horse, you know, you can do it all kinds of ways. So I have enjoyed. Wait, I, don't, I don't know how to well, do yoga on a horse. I just went somewhere where I shouldn't have. Yes, excellent program. So with that, I'm going to say one other thing, and then I'll just, it, I love the program. It was so well developed, um, and that's what fascinated me about it. It was so well put together. But anyway, one of the things that I will say on the brain and the fitness of the brain is actually working, exercising your brain. And one of the things that my occupational therapist, who is great, Michelle Hart, with the uh, Kessler Institute, BrainFit, this is an uh, app on your phone. Put the app on. It is an excellent, excellent <laughs> program. Excellent. 
and uh, brain fit oh it's several several really good programs that are on your computer and a, another thing that you can put as far as an app that is very good it's called keep keep is very good it's an app that organizes your day it organizes anything you can think of whether it is your grocery list you name it it's there so What's, it's so many what really is that, good that app things. is called keep keep okay -E -E so, so harry has said you've said a, a number of, of things i think that are bringing out some themes for the day <laughs> and that is being your own advocate you know recognizing yeah, where you might help awesome. being an advocate and seeking out those tools that you can use so thank you and so what Kim, Kimberly, you've actually done some assessments overall. That's a really great testimonial, and it's important to hear. But we have some actual uh, research that uh, yeah. So on the you program. know, the, for for several years, we had great qualitative feedback on the the wellness program, and um, in order to continue any program out there, in case you didn't know, you have to have quantitative data, <laughs> and so we were able to partner with the Kessler Foundation. And the study was published about two years ago. At the bottom line of the study, we looked at the effectiveness of our, can you hear me? Am I talking? Okay. Of our program and did pre- Don't worry. If it won't work, I'd get up and fix it. You, 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 probably, you missed that from the uh, first panel. <laughs> so we Sorry. looked at, we, um, so it was maybe an arduous process for the participants, but I always ask them to fill out pre and post questionnaires. So that data was looked at and then we had a control group. So bottom line, um, after the participation in the program, there was a, a decrease in, significant decrease in anxiety, the report of anxiety, depression, fatigue, and a really good sort of trend for a decrease in pain experience. And what I really like that Harry said and Carla said earlier when she was talking about her participation in research study is that it's really that group environment and having a sort of like a program model uh, where folks get, it's a, typically a small group, and so they get to be comfortable, they become a cohesive group, and it, it increases the individual self-confidence and um, appreciation for the self and compassion that, okay, you know, you know I'm, I'm um, like other people and other people are like me, mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. So that idea of social support and a strong social support network is really important. And we know that Helen studies this idea of social cognition, recognizing the emotions that other people are experiencing and, and how that uh, impacts your relationship. So which could have an, an impact on one's social support structure. Sure, absolutely. So yeah, this is a really exciting um, area of research because it's new. It's not something that um, people were studying, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, is that people with MS may have difficulty understanding the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions of other people. Um, we're just beginning to understand why that would be or what kind of deficits uh, exist. So for example, if you think about um, you know, coming home after a day of work and sitting down with your partner or your spouse or your mother. And after speaking with them for about 20 minutes, maybe they're annoyed and you have no reason, you, you have no idea why that could be. You know, and they may get up and walk out of the room and, and you're sitting there saying, what did I do? Or, you know, this kind of thing can happen. 
And it may be because um, you're not quite understanding how another person is feeling. So that's exactly the type of issue that we're studying now. And we've just started studying these issues. We've, um, we actually have a couple studies going on right now. One is looking at the impact of these sorts of deficits on relationships. So with a spouse or a partner, how these kinds of um, problems may cause friction between you and your partner. And, it could also uh, cause, I'm sure, a, ma a problem in the workplace. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. We haven't, we haven't looked at that yet. But um, yeah, no, it, it would affect any relationship you have. So um, definitely. So you've actually developed a, a, a treatment and are evaluating the effectiveness of yes. that treatment. So, so um, what is the treatment? So a colleague in my, uh, and I, Dr. Jeannie Langenfelder, um, she and I developed this treatment where it's a computerized program where people will um, come in, sit down with an interventionist, look at emotional faces on a computer screen, and identify why certain parts of the face come together to form a specific emotion. So for example, what does a face look like when it's angry? What does a face look like when it's sad or when it's afraid? And it will break it down for you step by step. First, we're looking at the eyes. Then we're looking at the mouth, just um, because it will help you better attend to those individual facial features. So you're teaching people what the face looks like, but you're also looking at what, what's happening in the brain. Yes, and we're doing another study, um, which is we're showing people emotional faces, and we're looking at what's happening in the brains of people with um, MS or traumatic brain injury and how it compares to um, others without those disorders and how the brains differ during trying to identify emotional faces. So you're actually finding changes in the brain after you go through the training? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking a lot uh, today about wellness and quality of life and um, we talk a lot about engagement and being part of life and, and really living uh, life as much as you can. How important is it? And, and what can we, what are the practical steps? That's kind of, I think I'd like to end on that uh, people can do to stay engaged. So I could speak to that. Um, staying employed um, is paramount, really. Um, at least not leaving for the wrong reasons, right? And staying for the right reasons. So there's many costs to unemployment. It's not just financial, but there's these silent costs that we refer to about. And this is in general population as well as people with MS. Um, cardiovascular disease increases within six months of being unemployed. Um, depression, fatigue, sleep disturbance, all sounds familiar. This becomes worse even in healthy individuals. Um, even a higher mortality rate, a higher suicide rate, all within six months to a year of being unemployed. And in contrast to that, re-employment for people with MS or other disabilities who were left and found jobs later on, we see improvements and gains in mental and physical health. So they're really important. But beyond even that, um, work is important. It provides purpose, meaning, self-esteem, identity. It's one of the first things we ask somebody when we meet them. What do you do for a living? How do you enjoy this? So it's, it's vital to, to health and well-being. And I always say too, if you can't work, find something comparable that is still social, meaningful, physically, cognitively active, whatever you were doing, find something comparable to that um, if you can't work. Because it's just, it's so vital to physical and mental health. Yes, and I would uh, add to this because they, so if you're working and you're still working, that's wonderful, but there are so many people as we heard before who cannot work for so many reasons. 
but it doesn't mean we cannot stay uh, active and engaged. It really relates to what was said before about the cognitive reserve. And uh, actually what Harry said before about the brain feed are different applications, different uh, activities that you can do in your, um, in your daily life, such as uh, solving a crossword, um, reading a book. Basically the idea is to be cognitively active. So uh, a lot of time when you're tired and fatigued, it's fine to watch TV, but don't do it a habit to watch it the whole day, just to sit there, try to be more actively engaged. It can be planting a pot, going to ride horses, <laughs> or uh, really just uh, reading a book or going to um, a social support group. Right, and we had a number of questions from the audience about how do you build that cognitive reserve, and those would be some of the strategies mm -hmm. to do yes. that. Um, yeah, I agree with all those suggestions, and I would stay, uh, importantly say, stay socially engaged. Uh, so we talked about the aquatics class um, uh, before, and I know that one of the benefits is not just feeling better physically, but also feeling more connected to the people around you and feeling like you're in a class with people who are going through all the things you're going through. And it's so tremendously important to stay socially connected as well. Right, but recognizing that uh, we're all, all kind of yep. getting out, for, getting in with people and feeling that connectedness. Yep. We're all similar, having similar needs in common. Really. Yeah, I would add to that, that social support and, and people living with a, a lifetime medical illness, social support is the number one predictor of quality of life. So it's not the quantity, not the number of people, it's the quality of that support and uh, making connections in that with some deeper meaning and, um, and always remembering the number one predictor of, of all of our quality of life, but especially if you're living with a lifelong illness. Now before we get, I have one more question that I think is important to hear from our panel and then we will open it up for your questions and I'll cover these questions um, as best as, as we can, but where do you see the next steps in, there's always, every research study, right, in cover, is it answering a question, but there's always more questions. So what are the next steps for this kind of research? Um, so for me, um, I'm continuing, um, hopefully, with more funding to follow people for a longer period of time, but I've been following a cohort of about 250 people with MS for the past four years. Um, individuals that were considering leaving work at the onset and those that said they had no difficulties to kind of see what the outcomes are with either staying employed or, or leaving the workforce. And we're also, more importantly, with the information we have gleamed at the beginning of the study, looking at the factors related to why people felt they needed to leave, we developed using pretty much every program here, the wellness program, a fatigue management program that was uh, developed in the UK, um, Nancy's cognitive rehabilitation, um, and then a psychological treatment. We are combining, it's called Staying Employed with MS, the STEMS project, um, and we are currently recruiting for that. Uh, it's a comprehensive, mod personal specific modular treatment to help people stay employed with MS and ultimately look at the outcomes if this, if this helps. And if so, this will kind of implore practitioners and insurance companies to maybe pay for vocational rehabilitation more effectively. Uh, I have uh, one study that is ongoing right now where we develop a um, so the issue, I'm speaking a lot about activities of daily living, but in research, because we have to quantify 
uh, activities of daily living, we developed an assessment to quantify it. So basically we're doing now an, a, a study to more validate the assessment and to make it more approachable for people who work with uh, patients with MS, so they will be able to assess everyday life functioning. And there, another study that I did already and it was published, but I want to do a bigger study, is really a study to improve memory. But in this improvement of memory, I don't want just to improve memory per se. I really want to try and see whether it can improve activities of daily living, yeah, how people remember things they need to do, um, whether they keep track on their shopping lists and like what uh, Helen said before, that you would take a picture. So basically it's like to keep track on the strategies that you would do, but to really apply them into your uh, daily life. Um, for my research, I, I always try to think of what is the next technique that we can use to better understand the problems that we're seeing. So for example, um, we just got an eye tracker at uh, Kessler. So we're able to look- Funded by a generous donor. Yes, and we're able to look and see where people are looking at a face. So if you put a face in front of them, you can actually track where their eyes are looking. So it's really going to be interesting to see if there's a difference be with people who are having these problems and where they're looking on the face. So techniques like that, such as you know eye tracking or neuroimaging, it's really exciting. It's, it's kind of cool to be on the cutting edge of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I want to participate in these yeah. studies. <laughs> I've always said I want to get in the, you know, do the fMRI, but they're like, well, you know, you don't really qualify. <laughs> um, but I've been trying for almost 10 years, <laughs> thinking of a way. So, um, you know, I, I, everybody's saying, you know, my research. So it's not really my research, you know. As being part of Kessler, I partner with the Kessler Foundation, and Lauren and I have been um, discussing and, you know, looking at funding opportunities to look at longer-term effectiveness of clinical intervention programs, such as the MS Wellness Program, and and really looking at so we can see effectiveness after a few months, what's the longer term effectiveness on quality of life. So. Okay. All right. So we're going to uh, cover your questions. And as we go around to the room, I'll, um, uh, cover, I'll, I'll cover these in between. So you can open it up. Uh, one of the things that I find is overstimulation really affects my cognition. If I'm in a situation where I'm a new driver in a new area, it's overstimulation. If I'm in a large crowd, overstimulation. My cognition goes, my patience goes, the, the fatigue sets in. So I would be looking for strategies to help me overcome that. Uh, one of the things is GPS, because I look at it, study it, before I go many times, which gives me a sense of confidence, but I still get overstimulation, and therefore sometimes I'm, when I'm driving, I'm not secure. So that's my issue with that, and I was wondering if you have any programs that helps with that reducing overstimulation. So that's actually a great question because I think there are situations we cannot uh, avoid, such as if you go, uh, let's say you go uh, before the holidays to buy uh, presents, you cannot avoid being in a store full with people. But because you know that you have this problem, maybe you can look for stores that, uh, maybe you can basically, what I'm trying to say is maybe you can plan 
a little bit better, such as going times that you know uh, other not a lot of people would be there, or uh, try to find stores that are smaller. And um, so basically, I think that for shopping and this type of uh, situations where you cannot control the environment, you need to plan ahead. But for situations such as navigation, it's almost, it taps into a thing that's called dual tasking because you have to do two things at the same time. And uh, I mentioned before my uh, example with texting while walking, it, it's actually not good to do and I don't suggest anyone to try it. <laughs> but if you think about it, it's the same thing driving while navigating. And it can be sometimes a bit dangerous. And therefore what you do, what you just described to try to study the route before you go, it's a great idea. I would add to it, to it before uh, when Dr. Chiravalotti spoke, she described the spacing effect. And one of the studies they did uh, many years ago was that we gave uh, persons to learn a route on a map and we asked them to do it one time and we waited for 10 minutes and we asked them to study it again. And after 10 minutes, we asked them to do it again. Uh, I would even make a bigger breaks if it wasn't in a study. I just didn't want that the participants will stay with me the whole day. But uh, if you do it at home, I would suggest do it like, you know, one time, give yourself a break, try again, until you learn. I don't, you don't have to learn it by heart, but just know the general idea of the route. So then you will be less distracted. You can concentrate more on the driving and less on the navigator. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, there is a lot of strategies that are more specific, but you have to keep in mind that doing few things at the same time is really hard for everyone. By the way, not only for patients with MS, it's kind of like it's something we see in people without any neurological impairment. And the sad thing that for patients with MS who have cognitive impairment, it's even more, but it's the same like healthy people. And I would say too, maybe um, does is your GPS does it give verbal as well as looking? Because sometimes, okay, it does have a verbal. Because sometimes if I'm using one and I, I'm really not familiar, I find it much more helpful if the person is telling me turn left up ahead, you know, versus having to look and keep my eye on on both the screen and the the road. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So I think the idea is really a controlled situation versus uncontrolled situation and planning versus strategies that you can incorporate. So I want to highlight too, because that was a great example. So um, for me, it's just the opposite. I was going to say just the opposite uh, to Helen's comment. I can't auditory. It could also be that I set my GPS to British Kate because um, I like her, <laughs> but um, I've come to realize I was missing, I noticed I was missing turns and I had my partner in the car and he's telling me you're not listening and I realized I wasn't because I'm a visual learner. Mm. So I've come to now, especially in Jersey, I don't live in Jersey, uh, with the hooks, I can't figure it out, turn left because I can't turn left. Um, so I look at the map and I look ahead to see if I have a straight line for a while and I look then at, the, I go, okay, I have a while. And then when I don't, I actually just look at the color-coded little map um, but that's without person's styles, right? We all have a way in which we learn, and we would do this with kids or anybody of figuring out what works best for you. Exactly. So we have a couple of questions about diet uh, and nutritional supplements that might be able to help. Is that something we can 
speak to? I would, you know, I don't think any of us do. Well, we, we, don't do we don't do nutrition. <laughs> However, uh, one of the things that Kimberly just said that there is like the managing stress is very important, but based on the literature, and especially in terms of inflammatory diseases, it's also managing your diet and sleep. So we spoke about sleep in the first uh, session. Mm -hmm. So you know that we don't do research about it, but I can say that I hear from a lot of uh, patients who I worked with in my studies about different diets they, they incorporate. Uh, for and, but I don't want to say any because I never studied it and I'm not an expert on this. And stress management is the other thing that is very important. Yeah, but there is evidence of a, a low, I mean for any of us, a low inflammatory diet um, is sort of optimal. Which would be what? Uh, I don't want to say, yeah, want the, to say okay. just, you know, search up anti-inflammatory because diets, because again, we are, I didn't do research before, like, every, like literature search to see what's, what's are the evidence and I don't want to give misleading Evidence, but there are a lot of things out yeah, there. The, the National MS Society, which the local chapter is yes. here today, they have a great um, informational, uh, I don't know what you're going to call it, brochure on nutrition and MS. Um, and if you participate in the MS Wellness Program, there is a, a dietitian that comes in and talks about it sp um, specifically. But the MS uh, Society's information is really great. Any other questions out there we need to address from the audience here? And I want to give everyone who's still here a shout out because I'm sure you're all very tired. <laughs> there, there, there is one person who wanted to speak over well, I there. I just wanted to say one thing. Um, I know the MS Society. Well, here, I can repeat the question. Oh, the MS Society, I believe, just gave um, grant money to Dr. Terry Walls uh, to do uh, uh, dietary. Yes. Yeah. Um, Dietary no. trial. Yes. Yes. I do. Exactly. So I don't know if everyone heard that, but the National MS Society just funded a, a study, and Moira is holding up a card, but I don't know. Yes. Diet. <laughs> yes. Okay. There's a so there is a food for thought brochure at the national at the MS Society table. Yes. Actually, they're funding a three-way diet with the most, the three most popular diets for our MS, which is the Swank diet, the Walls Protocol, and the Hello. Mediterranean. Oh yes, diet. the Mediterranean. Yes, yes. yes. We have a, a question um, yes, from a participant. The, the, her doctor does not want her to take vitamin K with uh, for the MS. Why could this be? Vitamins. Maybe, John, do you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. Sure. Our, right, and as uh, our, right, our focus is not, has not been on nutrition and that sort of thing, so we can't really speak to something we haven't studied and are focusing mm -hmm. as opposed to cognition and its impact. So maybe um, the MS Society has resources that could help answer that question. There's some there. Yes. I have, a, I have a question. I have to say, when I was laid off from work uh, about seven years ago, my family was absolutely thrilled. 
And when I want to engage in working of any type, I have to tell you, there's no support there. And I don't know how to overcome that. I don't know. Do you mean from your family? Yes, from yeah. my family. They're, you know, they're, they're helping, they'll help out other ways, but not in that specific way. And for me, I feel the need to help people. They, and so you're saying that they, they think you, don't, you shouldn't work. Correct. It'll be too stressful. Correct. Would, would, they be, um, would they be supportive of something? I'm thinking something along the line of a compromise. For example, if they were concerned that going back full time would be too much for you, if you were to take on a part-time position to kind of show that you could do it, you, you, you can manage it. Yeah, I, I guess so, because I, I ended up having to go part-time, and I think that did have something to do with the, the employment, the termination as far as being laid off, because I was the only part-timer in that, in the really probably for most of the company. And it's been hard to find something in that. So I, you know, I do little odd things, but um, maybe, but I, I, it's been hard to find a part-time job in a technical, in, in the companies, most companies don't hire part-time unless sure. it's like a low wage and then standing physically, I couldn't do that. But mentally, I could do something. I guess a, a lot of, a con I mean, unfortunately, again, I think the world of vocational rehab is a little bit behind for MS. But um, there are certain accommodations that certainly you can advocate for yourself and getting. And a lot of what our patients have told us are things such as getting a flex time, figuring out when is your worst fatiguing time and asking can I work different hours working from home after a treatment when you're most fatigued um, but there's and even just at the workforce like standing just asking for a place to sit or take rest or having your desk closer to the track that you're going all day that are part-time they're all right well that's very yes that's, true. that's yeah that's, that's true yeah. So there are two main problems that you discuss. It's one, it's the family support that is like crucial. And I guess like uh, every person here in the audience needs the family support and need family connection for different reasons, not just work. And then the other thing is like the outside world that is not necessarily supportive of the needs of persons with disabilities. And this is a major problem. Um, as Lauren said, I think a lot of this is behind, like there's not a lot of answers for this, especially, and it's also very much depend on field of work that you go to. Mm -hmm. One way I think to bypass, bypass this is maybe to find volunteering, because volunteering can answer like this part-time, but still this engagement part, so the only thing is you won't get money for it, but it will keep you engaged and also flexible, so then you can answer the needs of your family as well. But you're right, there are two, you know, it's two separate things that needs negotiation, definitely. And if I could add to that, one of the things that I have not heard come up is about caregivers, family support, is to, you know, my question as a psychologist comes to mind is that, well, what are they afraid of? What is the family afraid of? And, um, and that, that's a big question, so I'm sure, <laughs> right? Um, but there's some reason. There's something, there's, there's some reason. And just, uh, not just, but you know, opening that dialogue, which again, all depends on the communication styles. Yeah.
Be sure and stop by our Facebook page to listen to this podcast series and join in the conversation at our Twitter channel at KesslerFDN. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.